As the offering is being taken, I just want to share with you um, this little truth, and that is that uh, when George said the service is going to 1230, I, I think he meant that, yeah, the silent auction is going to 1230, but if you want to go to 1230, we're into that as well. Um, I am. Uh, I just want to share with you as, as we kind of take this, that this whole series that we started in, in Hebrews is the best way to explain it is as we talk about the better life. This series, which we've called The Better Life, is because the idea that every line, every page of this letter called Hebrews, which is found near the end of your Bible, go down to the very end and go left back a little bit, you'll find that longer letter. <coughs> you'll find that in, in every line, every page, Jesus is better in every way. That's his point. And so last week I was trying to make that point by just letting you know the structure of the book and going through the book and the idea that there are signs, there are shadows that point to a substance. There's this idea of, of, of words, in a sense, symbols that point to a reality. And I was trying to get us to understand that what was happening with the people there is they were holding on to the sign rather than moving into the actual reality. It'd be like if you come and you're driving and you're going to, um, <coughs> excuse me, and you're going to like Dallas and all of a sudden you get to the sign, it says Dallas, 400 miles or so to go. And you stop and say, this is great, let's stay, we're at Dallas. And everyone, no, no, no. Dallas, the actual Dallas you want to go is still a bit further. It's still out that way. And it'd be silly to stop at the sign. And, and I think that's what he's saying. So I was trying to help you understand it last week by, you know, getting you to taste what would it be like if you had French silk pie and I gave one out and people were somewhat excited about getting a piece of French silk pie. I asked about sea salt caramel coffee. Anybody want one? A few people raised their hands and gave that out. And then I asked how many wanted a bag of $100 bills. And it was amazing how you responded and, 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 and said, I, I want that. Well, the messages that he's saying is the prophets were good, but Jesus is better. The angels, the messengers of God are good, but Jesus is better. Moses, as an advocate, mediator, he's good, but Jesus is better. And that's what we're going to be looking at throughout this passage of Scripture over and over again. He says, Jesus is the real deal. Don't stop. Don't stop at the sign, the symbol. Don't stop at the shadow because there's something of substance. There's reality. There's actuality that's ahead. And, and that's why I had you think about that. So I thought this week, let's just make it real again because it's the idea is Jesus is a real deal. So you need to kind of understand that's what you're called as believers to do is to be experiencing what's real. So think about how many like red licorice? Just raise your hand if you like red licorice. Okay, if you like red licorice um, and you like the taste of it, can you taste it in your mouth, you know, get one of those little strings? Like Twizzlers. What's better than just thinking about it? It's actually having it. Would you like this? Now, you, you, it's fine with me if I make noise and open it and share it with other people. Because the whole idea is that it tastes good and there might be some others around you and it's a little bit of sacrifice to give it away because you don't get the whole package. But that's really <clears throat> what we're talking about when we talk about the Christian faith. Because in the Christian faith, there's a sense that you live this out and as it spills out, people might go, I want a little of that. I want that substance. I want the reality. I want the actuality. What it means to live in the experience of the goodness of God. And so as we go through this whole message you're going to hear again and again there'll be these warnings seven warnings but in this process he's going to say this is better jesus is better than what was past what was then don't settle for what is less and so often folks i'm not talking about old testament stuff i'm talking about the fact that we settle in life for less than what god intends and it's real possible to kind of forget about that and to not move forward so i'm going to ask you to stand if you'd stand, <clears throat> it's about better brothers and, and sisters and, and, and that kind of idea today as we look at this message. And so I want you to hear the word of God. Partially I want you to stand because you've been sitting so long. So, you know, you can, if you want to move and something like that, when I read the word of God, that won't be irreverent. 
But he writes in chapter 2, verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you have, that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering, through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name by my, to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and to free those who all their lives were held slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and high priest in service to God, and that he might be, make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let us pray. Father. We thank you for your spirit here through worship. We thank you for your presence. Now we ask that you would speak. Holy Spirit, I pray, take the words that you have put in my heart and thoughts. And and, and I pray that you would allow for you, God, to show up in people's hearts and really meet them right where they need. Speak to us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before you turn and sit down, I want you to turn to someone and say, hello, brother or sister. Because we're a family here. We're we're a church family. Okay, thank you. You might take a seat, and um, I really appreciate that. Uh, what I, what I want to share with you as we kind of go into this, seri- this, this message today is beginning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, uh, that we're talking about Jesus being our, our bigger, better brother. And I had a bigger brother, not always better. And, you know, I learned to live, and there's parts of him that I, I just, as a two, two years younger, I idealize, and then there's things that go, man, you know, you know how big brothers are. You have your fights and all. Anyway, we are given a bigger, better sibling. I want to ask you to, for a second just to, to raise your hand. How many of you are a bigger, um, and let's forget the better part, you're, you're an older sibling? Just raise your hand if you're an older sibling. Okay. Um, not, not the oldest, you're just an older sibling, right? So you have someone who's younger than you, right? right? Okay, then if you would raise your hand if you have an older sibling, go ahead and do that. Someone who's over you as a sibling, okay? So we've pretty much got everybody. You can go, anybody not have a brother or sister? Raise your hand. 
Okay, I feel for you. Um, you, At the same time, you got all your parents' love and affection, but you do have a bigger brother. You may not realize it, but you have a bigger brother who cares very much for you. And we're going to talk about that in these verses, and we're going to look at this. It could be a number of ways to look at it, but I think it makes sense to look at this idea of a brother because he talks about being in a family. And there are five ways that he is a bigger, better brother for you. And the first one is this, that Jesus, our big brother, as we read through verses 5 through 9, he clears the way and restores us to be who God always intended. Can you imagine having a brother who kind of, or a sister or someone over to you who was going to clear the way and do all they could to help you become all that you could be? That's what Jesus does. In fact, if you do a quick review of, of, of Hebrews um, chapter 1, you need to kind of do this to catch what's going on here because he starts talking about in the first three verses that, that there's, a better message than, there's a better message than the one that came before because before God spoke in various different ways through prophets. So there's a better message. And then he goes on, he says, and, and there's a better messenger. You're really into angels, and angels were really important because at Sinai, he came and he gave the law, and he gave these words and revelation to Moses, and, and, and there was this sense that these angels mediated this message. But he's saying in chapter 1, this very important word, that the one who has come, is, he carries a better message, but the, the reality is he's not only carrying a better message, he is actually the message. He, he's the bringer of the message. It comes from him himself. It's God. And, and you find this, if you look in these first three verses, of, there's seven quick descriptions of Jesus compared to the past. In those first three verses, a son, not mere prophet. He's the heir, the one who inherit, not a mere servant. He's the creator, not a mere creation. He's actually the inner radiance of God's glory, not merely one who reflects the glory of God. He's the exact representation of his being. He's not just an image He's the sustainer, not merely one who is sustained. And then the the seventh way, which kind of completes the whole picture, that whole number of completions, seven, perfection. He's the full and final sacrifice, not some weekly, monthly, yearly hope of someday being forgiven and set free from that which has enslaved you. And so he begins by talking about Jesus being God, and then he moves into the angels, and he says, guess what? He's not only the better message, but he's actually the messenger himself. He carries the message. He is the message. He is God. He's better than angels. And so he ends in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 by saying, if you thought you needed to listen to the word of God that was mediated by these angels, you need to really take account right now because you are being talked to by God himself who showed up in flesh and blood. This is not just a better message, but the messenger himself is God. So pay attention. Don't drift. Don't drift from what you've been told. And so you get this kind of warning. And and, and the Jewish mind had this sense that angels were a big deal, which they are. Angels are incredible. Again, like I said last week, if you open your eyes in the spiritual realm right now, when we were singing, you would see angels. You will see, even as I was speaking, you could see angels coming to people as a message and the word hits their heart and, and be speaking, encouraging, and bringing healing and things such as that. That's just the way it works. We, went, we don't see it, but it's there. And so they have a right to be kind of like thrilled with angels, but what they're difficult, the difficulty here is this. How can this Jesus who has come be better than angels? 
And he set it up. He said he's God. But they're having this struggle. They, they're having a real difficulty with a paradigm shift. You've got to put yourself in their shoes. They are coming from this place and they're going, but wait a second. Man is lower than the angels. Come on, let's face it. And he's going, no, what I want you to understand that Jesus is better. He's, he's a, he, he comes as your brother and sister to restore what God had always intended for you and for creation. So that's why he says this. If you look at these verses, verses 5 through verse um, nine, I believe it is. He says, it is not the, the angels that he subjected the world to come. Now, I got to just stop on that world to come. It's really important because the world to come is the future world. It's, it's this idea of heaven. And we think of heaven being out there somewhere, you know, God's way out there someday. You know, when people die, they go to God and he's up in heaven. He's talking about something the Jewish people knew that the word of God speaks about. He talks about an, uh, the world to come is the new heaven and earth, which Revelation speaks about. There's this fact that this earth, and I don't understand it, but the more you get into physics and understanding, it's possible. He's going to take this earth and he's going to renew it to be what it was always meant to be. Praise God. We'll be overwhelmed. He says, so I'm not speaking about that. It's not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. And and then he moves into the Psalm of David. In Psalm 8, David is with great awe, goes, what is mankind? You know, David was a ruler over what was the then earth, so he's ruling. What is mankind that you're mindful of them, a son of man that you even care about them? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Not the angels, mankind's feet. In the same way, he said, I just can't believe that you give us a second thought. It's incredible that you even take an interest in us, God. And yet you did make us a little lower than angels. And the idea is that he made us lower than angels for a period of time, just like Jesus, so that he would exalt us to a place next to, in Jesus, right next to the Father. That's amazing. In fact, if you read this, it says, in, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is subject to you and to me. We're called to actually rule. We reign as priests, a royal priesthood it talks about. In the, it's the idea that we reign, that we rule, and we represent God. So where we go, he's restoring us to where we're supposed to be, that we are to live our lives. And he gives us our will so we can choose. He gives us a mind so that we can use it. He gives us all these things of our person. And he's restoring us in relationship to God. He's restoring us in relationship to one another. He's restoring us in relationship to ourselves. He doesn't like it that you um, live in a, a sense where you may be hard on yourself and you live in shame. He doesn't like it for the fact that you carry guilt. That's why he came on the cross. He doesn't like it when you have self-hatred. and you put. He's restoring. He says, get back to where you're supposed to be. You're to live like Jesus. Even though you don't, you, don't, you don't deserve all that love and all that attention of the Father, but get back to understanding who I've made you to be. Jesus did that for you. And he says, I want you to understand this. I want you to live in this in putting everything under them. God left nothing to be subject to them. And he's reiterating the truth of David that all is subject to us. We need to understand that. And so he's trying to help this mind go, yeah, Jesus is God. Anybody have trouble with the idea of the incarnation? That's what they're dealing with. Anybody have trouble with the fact that Jesus is both God and man? And what he's trying to do is to say, here is God who's shown up as man. And in God, um, in, in man is God in fullness and that's why he actually says at one point in verse 14 of chapter 1, the angels, what they're about, they're messengers to help us and to care for us. Can you believe it? They're servants to serve us. And there's a lot of theologians 
who actually believe that in Genesis, when that whole thing is being revealed and God is showing his plan, is what happens is Satan, who is the one next to God bringing worship and praise of all creation, gets the drift of his plan that he makes these humans out of dust who are going to rule with him and he's going to bring them to that level and there's many theologians who believe that the unveiling of that plan was when his pride was so dented and he was so envious and angry that in any way these little dirt balls would rule and a lot of theologians, many of them will say, and I think it makes perfect sense, it's like the guy who's a CEO, and all his life he's built this company, he's got it running, and it's humming, and it's great, and he's been putting people in charge. He's got a guy right now who's like a senior vice president, and the senior vice president is going, I, you know, I, I, I'm so important, someday I'm going to run this thing. And at one point he says, you know what, I've been training my son, he's been taking places, you know, work over here and there, and eventually he's going to run the place. And the guy goes, you've got to be kidding Pride is dented, he's envious, he's jealous, and so what he does is in the, he never tells anybody, but he goes around and he just destroys the machinery, destroys things, he's sabotaging the glory of God because he can't stand you and me. And Jesus comes to clear the way, to bring us back in his presence. He says, yet we don't see it presently, right? We understand that not everything seems to be subject to mankind. But we do see Jesus, their bigger, better brother, who was made lower than the angels for a little while and now is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for you and me. And I just think about that. Our our better, bigger brother, Jesus, did what we couldn't do. He cleared the way. He restored us, and he's, he's promoting us, moving us more fully into who we're supposed to be. That's part of what this life is about. The more we follow the way of Jesus, the more the way of Jesus gets inside us, the more the way of Jesus begins to restore us and, and bring us back to what he's always intended. I don't know. Have you had a bigger brother or sister clear the way for you? I mean, this might make this a little bit more real. Anybody have that kind of thing happen? Because I did. I had an older brother, two years older, who, who what I call broke the hair barrier. Now, if you're younger in that generation, this won't make sense to you. Um, but you have to understand, there came at one point in my life, when I was younger, there was this bell-bottomed kind of polka-dotted shirt, hippie generation. Anybody remember that generation? And, and what is really funny is back in the 60s, you had the groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Mamas and the Papas and Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Turtles and the Monkeys, very tame names compared to the names today, right, of bands. But they came off, and, they, and the Beatles come from Europe, and it's this big thing, and, and, and they're wearing suits and ties. And their hair is cut rather short. But you get a little bit later in the 60s, and they're getting to the late 60s and 70s, and now it's kind of this time of rebellion that's going on, and they're wearing their hair longer. In fact, guess what? They're wearing facial hair. And in that time, in that day, in the church, you, didn't wear, you hear buzz cuts, basically, and no facial hair. And if you did, I mean, I look at some of you have facial hair, you're sinners. You know, I don't know why in the world you're doing this. I had a hard time understanding it as a kid growing up at seventh grade. I'm looking at, I'm being told that you can't have facial hair and mustache beards aren't right. And these hippie guys who are wearing their hair down like this. And I go look at the, the pictures of the saints of the old that were up on, and they had beards and mustaches and weird mustaches and hair that flowed down to here. And I go, what's going on? And so here we are, my brother, two years older, he's probably ninth, 10th grade. I remember many times sitting in the car and there would be a fight because my dad says, you're going to get a haircut this week. My brother's hair was just coming over his ears 
And it was like, I thought for like years, they were, you know, at it. On the way to church, anybody, you know, any, you know, and then you get to church, everyone's like, hey, yeah, it's great. We love each other. Steam coming out of yours, you know. And, and my brother broke the hair barrier so that he cleared the way so that I could look like this. There you go. Yeah, it's, it's called the wraparound hair look or um, the helmet head. You, please take that down. I don't want that going anywhere. We'll destroy that. But you know what? The, the whole idea was I didn't have to suffer a bit because he did all the suffering for me. He cleared the way. And that's what he's trying to make the point here. Is this is what Jesus did for you. That's what he, that he's saying here when we look at this passage of Scripture. He, he wants to make it very clear that your bigger, better brother sacrificed and suffered, tasted death, eternal separation, exile from God so that you don't have to. Jesus tasted death so that you could actually feast on life today and forever. And as I was thinking about this, and, and I was thinking we're in this season of Lent, and Lent is about you know, kind of giving up things, preparing yourself for Easter, um, understanding the way of Jesus and the, the road to the cross and what it means to sacrifice and suffer. And as I was thinking about this, my, my thought came to this question that, that God came to me. And then as I began to just dwell on it, my, my thought was for you as well. Where is God asking you to sacrifice and suffer to clear the way for someone else? It probably won't be the hair barrier, Right? But where might God be saying where you work or, or, or where you live or in some circumstance? What does it mean for you to say, I'm going to help this person. I'm going I'm to help it so that they can be promoted one more step closer to what it means to, to follow the way of Jesus. Maybe to know Jesus for the first time or maybe just to help them to move forward. That's when we talked about earlier the refugee crisis and some of the stuff that's happening and, and our opportunity to be able to step into this, at least with one family, uh, what I find is interesting, we have a team of people, and I found out that when this family came and were settled into an apartment, arrived, had that ready for them, when they came to that apartment, uh, we found out that that apartment was filled, it was just filled with bed bugs. And we had a team of people. I'm not one that went because I don't want, I mean, bed bugs give me the creeps. But we had a team of people who sacrificed and suffered, went in and helped them move all that stuff out of their apartment to get something else so that they could get something else prepared for them. There are people who are willing to say, I will sacrifice, I will suffer. We're not going to a cross, but we're saying we'll do something. There there are people that as we look at the, the coming year, the source ministry, human trafficking is a huge thing in our world today. And when the Super Bowl comes, they say one day out of the year is one of the most human traffic times in our country, and it's around Super Bowl time. And there are churches and people coming together. We are actually coming together with St. Philip the Deacon. In fact, I think it's April 22nd. You can look for this. We're going to have a course and start getting people prepared to say, how can we work with source ministries to help free people from human trafficking? So it may be in this way, God is saying, do you have some time? Do you have a little bit of of yourself that you can sacrifice in order to, to give your abilities to even help here? We have a group of, uh, of people who work with Ethiopia, and they have coming up, I think on March 25th, um, of what they call a break the cycle of poverty in that area where we're working, and they're going to put a seminar on it. And you may want to talk to a person like Dick Augustine and say, how can I get engaged in that? There's just lots of ways to do it. We have safe families for people in a time of crisis where you take their kids. A family takes the kids and, and takes in maybe a single mom just to help them. 
Lately, we've, we have people who have been visiting, and we, we often are told that we're a friendly church, but I found from people who live out of state that come here, and, and they're maybe in, in, in their 30, late 30s, 40s, they say, you know, Minnesota's really friendly, but they're not, it's really hard to get into friendships here. And so we're really trying to, as a church, do small groups and things like that to, to move people from a, just a place of being friendly, how you do on a Sunday, is to begin to build friendships. What does it look like to be in these kind of smaller groups? And Shelley, who is our connecting pastor, is leading opportunities for people to learn how to lead these kind of small groups. And we're just looking for ways, these groups of dinners for people that they can get connected to break that kind of friendly Minnesota niceness. And it may mean, what does it mean for you What is God asking you to maybe sacrifice and suffer just a bit? There's also another thing that we look at this. This is the second thing, and I'll run through the next of these rather quickly because the first one is the one that you needed to understand why he's talking about um, Jesus being a better brother mankind because of what he does to promote people to be all they can be. But there's something else that's interesting. If you look at verse 10, he's basically saying Jesus, our bigger brother, is the perfect example. How many of you, as older brothers or sisters, remember your parents saying, watch your older brother and sister do whatever they do. It is fitting and proper to do so because they are so wise, mature, and almost perfect. (laughs) Yeah, not at all, right? Hebrews 10 says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory by promoting them, clearing the way so they could become all God intended, it was fitting that God, the Father, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation, the founder, Jesus, look at this, perfect through suffering, uh, perfect through what he suffered. And you can't get away from this concept of suffering. He's a better brother, even in his example that he lays out for us. It's perfect. God says, watch my son and do what my son does. The better life in Jesus is not a promise that you won't suffer. Jesus made a point. He said, you will, in following me, you will, um, you will have life and have it to its fullest. But if you follow me, you will be like me, and that will mean that you will choose willingly to sacrifice and suffer to help promote others. You're going to use your power no longer to try and manipulate and get your own way and to get things that you need. You're going to begin to use your power to help empower others to get what God wants for them. And so he says, that's your perfect example. So at a certain point, he says this. If you look at Jesus, he says, guess what? Your founder, the one who did all this, he, catch, he was made mature, perfect, complete, through suffering. And, and, and if you think about it, that's kind of an interesting thing. But I thought he was God and man. What's, what's that all about? In chapter 5, we'll look at that further because he really moves into that a little bit more. But what he's saying here is this. Not only are we called to sacrifice and suffer to help promote and move someone forward, but guess what? When you sacrifice and suffer, you actually are doing something for your very soul. God is doing something in you. He's maturing and actually promoting you into a greater sense of who he's called you to be in those times. Now, he doesn't talk suffer just for suffering's sake. He talks about the kind of suffering that is done out of love, that is done out of kindness to help use your power to promote someone else into a place they need to be. And so when he makes that kind of comment, he's making a very important statement here. He's saying, and, and, and studies show this, you know, these study of delayed gratification where they brought these little kids in and they had marshmallows. Some of you may be aware of that one. They found out that the kids who had the ability to delay their gratification when they were older were 
were the ones who were further along and farther advanced and, and more mature in the way they made choices. There is something that he's saying here. Your older brother shows you that suffering perfects you. It matures you. It completes you. So when it comes to this, it's partially you're doing it out of love, but, but guess what? You get a benefit. Because even your older brother did. And it's interesting, he says, it was fitting that God... I, I looked at that and thought, what's so proper and fitting about, about this whole idea until he recognized again, that's the very nature and character of God. It is the way of God our Father. It is the way of Jesus Christ. It is fitting because it's the way of those who follow Christ to suffer so that they grow mature and they can help others experience the love and goodness of God. And not only is he a better brother in the sense that he clears the way and in the sense that he um, brings about this restoration and through the fact he's this perfect example, the third thing is that he's a bigger brother and as your bigger brother, he's proud of you. He's proud of, of you. Look at verses 11 through 13. He's, he says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same family and Jesus is not ashamed. In fact, he's so proud. I declare their name. He says, I put my trust in them. It's one thing to say, God, you know, I just want to really trust you. But what if God says, I trust you where you live and where you work to make a difference in people's lives? I'm going I'm to trust you. I'm going to commission you. I trust you right now. And then he goes on and he says, and he says again, here am I and the children God's given me. Those who follow his way and are, are saying, God, I want to learn to follow you. I want to do the way of Jesus. I want to learn what it means for me to take my power to empower someone else. I want to learn what it means to suffer. And in that suffering, know that you're building something in my soul I could never do by all the getting and trying to make things happen on my own. But I'm learning something through this process. And through this process, Jesus just goes, I'm so proud of you. He looks at you and goes, I'm so proud. I'm so proud to call you my kid sister. I just love, look at God, what she's doing. I'm so proud to call you my kid brother. Look at God, look at, look at the way they're living. He, he, he basically saying, I, I'm, I've, I'm just so in love with their heart, those who, who love the marginalized and helpless and those who are hopeless. And, and look how they provide meals and they open their homes and they share their gifts and abilities and they're willing to take their resources and their money and, and make a difference in people's lives. Folks, that's what the church is about. That's the ministry that we're called to. And not only do we have a bigger brother who's so proud of us, we have a bigger brother who destroys every enemy. And and the one who wants to keep us in fear and keep us from bondage and keep us from doing it, it says in 14 through 17, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Jesus became flesh and blood, he says, specifically in this to help people of flesh and blood. Not the angels, he says, but Abraham's descendants, if you look down into verse 16. Not only that, Jesus came to break the power of Satan who holds the power of death. The consequence is that every one of us at some point has committed adultery. We've turned our eyes away from God, and as a result of that, we are told that in our idolatry, it's called sin, and it's in sin that we make ourselves slaves to whatever we're making idol. So if, you're, you're, if one of your idols, let's just say you're really struggling with lust, and one of your idols become the fact that that lust begins to control your heart. You see what I mean? You give yourself over to that, and as a result of that, it puts you in exile. It separates you. It makes you a little bit separate from God. And God saying, and Jesus says, guess what? The power of the enemy has been broken. The fear of death is done. When you sin, whenever you do that, you don't have to 
stay in the power and the grip of that. You can, in repentance, just turn and say, God, thank you so much. You broke that power. I don't have to worship that anymore. I don't have to feel guilty until you accept me. I don't have to live in shame. I can stand in your love and your goodness. That's what your bigger brother did. Every enemy he destroyed. And the words here is interesting. He said he be, Jesus became one of us so that he would make us one with God. That's what it says in this. This idea of atonement is a word that's used here, which may mean easy to say is at one meant. Oh, I'm so into this, and I look at the clock, and I go, I'm done. Um, we did say 1230, right? There's... Just the last thing is that Jesus understands this completely. Every temptation you have experienced, he has experienced. And, and I just say this, and then we're going to show this video, and then I think I'll just come up and close, if that's okay. Um, you are more than likely going to be tempted to not forgive. You're going to be tempted in so many ways, but Jesus, because he was tempted, understands you fully. He understands you fully. And he knows this temptation and yet, if you're willing to say, God, in the midst of this, I open my heart and I'm going to take a step towards you, not away from you, he will begin to move in you to bring about real change. So I'm going to ask you to watch this video because I think it's an incredible story that just helps exemplify this. And then I'll close in prayer. We end this week with a lesson in forgiveness from Steve Hartman on the road. It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Back in 05, Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of and arrested him for dealing drugs. You're saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all made up. Of course, a lot of accused men make that claim, but not many arresting officers agree. So you phonied the report? I did. I falsified the report. This is former Benton Harbor police officer Andrew Collins. Were you just trying to chalk up an arrest? Basically, the start of that day, I was going to make sure I had another drug arrest. And in the end, you put an innocent guy in jail? Correct. Yeah. You lost everything. I lost everything. My only goal was to seek him when I got home and to hurt him. Really? That was my goal. Eventually, that crooked cop was caught, served a year and a half for falsifying many police reports, planting drugs and stealing. Of course, Jamel was exonerated, but he still spent four years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Today, both men are back here in Benton Harbor, which is a small town, maybe a little too small. Hey guys, thank you. Last year, by sheer coincidence, they both ended up at Mosaic, a faith-based employment agency where they now work side-by-side in the same cafe. Oh, excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. And I said, honestly, I have no explanation. All I can do is say I'm sorry. And Jamel says that was all it took. That was pretty much what I needed to hear. Today, they're not only cordial. Saturday, we went to the trampoline park. They're friends. Uh, You know, we talk about life. Such close friends. Not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him. And I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that. I I don't deserve that, you know. Did you forgive 
for his sake or for yours? No, for our sake. Not just us, for our sake. Jamel went on to tell me about his Christian faith and his hope for a kinder (laughs) mankind. He wants to be an example. So now he and Andrew give speeches together about the importance of forgiveness and redemption. Grab this one, set it over there. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds, what's our excuse? Steve Hartman, On the Road, in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And that's the... I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to close in prayer. Um, there will be people to pray with you. Uh, Nate and some of them will be in back. They'd love to. If, please thank them for their ministry. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, we just would say that um, those words, what's our excuse? If you're leading us, all you ask uh, is that we allow you to work in and through us. All you're asking is in our act of obedience to follow you, whatever it might look like. Whatever that is, God, we just offer that to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.